So um, you broke me. And, uh, <laughs> and I watched the first 11 or 12 episodes of Avatar, The Last Airbender. Yay! Wait, See, I've been rewatching it as well. Because clearly this started the day before yesterday. I got pretty into it. Um, <laughs> what have you watched? Sorry? I, I've started rewatching it as well. So I think I'm at about the same point as you. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I like the flying yak, buffalo He's bison. A bison. Bison, sorry. He's um, a sky he, bison. Sky, sorry, of course he is. Um, I like what they've done with the animals. And it's interesting because it shares a name with Avatar, the bad film, mm-hmm. uh, who do this thing with animals where they take earth animals and make them just slightly different. But it's rubbish there and it's really good in the cartoon. It is amazing. I love like, it. I like the because four winged penglings. Wait till you meet the platypus bears. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I even like the eagle rhinos. Oh, the eagle rhinos are great. Yeah. Cat Helen rhinos. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very good cartoon. As usual, the slight gurning and overexpression of anime annoys me. And the kind of fun sarcasm, stereotypical boy stuff or whatever. But that's because it's a kid's show and I can accept that. Mainly, I also, think the artwork is just fucking beautiful. And I'm it is, quite happy to very, watch it very, It's very pretty. Soccer does eventually get force-fed respect women juice in a really good way. Uh, I saw him get beaten up by a bunch of girls. Yeah, the Warriors of Kyoshi are great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Suki. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to your thoughts on, how did you describe him? Baldy ponytail boy. Oh, um... Yeah, him. <laughs> yeah, he's po- he's Baldy McPonytail. And then there's Downvote Boy. Um, Downvote Boy, yeah. Being Ang. Yeah. <laughs> uh, angry sideburns guy as General Zhao. Yeah. This yeah. is really rubbish for our listeners who have never <laughs> seen Avatar The Last Airbender. Well, now you'll know how I have... felt for the last two years. <laughs> I just want Which really to isn't their Avatar fault, obviously. So I don't know why I'm. <laughs> I think anyway, really uh, our listeners should all watch it as well. That can be their homework. Cool. So we've actually got quite a lot of podcasty stuff to podcast about this week. So should we launch more or less straight into? Do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make Ye Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part three of our discussion of moving pictures. The pictures final part in the trilogy, move. the climax, the one with all the expensive special effects and a weirdly long journey to Mordor, considering like how you meant to make it the most exciting one, but fine. Yeah, God. That dragged. I, Maybe it's just because I had like the long edition. Yeah, when I rewatched all of the extended editions in one day, by the time it got to the end of Return of the King, and I was a bit like, how many fucking endings does this film have? Yeah, absolutely. How many endings does this book have, though? Yes, yeah. it's very feature-length film in that respect. Um, yeah. Re- spoiler warning us? Uh, yes, this is a spoiler-light podcast. Obviously, heavy spoilers for the book we're on, Moving Pictures. We are going to reveal the ending in this episode. Yes. But we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series, and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there, so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. On an ethereal movie magic horse across a desert with a camera following you. Yes, and some camels. Yes, always the camels. Always the camels. 
Anything to follow up on, Francine? Yeah, so I actually did my homework once. Uh, <laughs> last week I was saying something vague about an early movie that was racist and I couldn't remember what it was and it was before Gone with the Wind. Um, it's called Birth of a Nation, which I should have remembered because Jack talked about it at length as he watched it. Um, I did not watch it because it was three hours long. It was um, it was the first 12 reel film. It was released in 1915 and it was a landmark in film history. Okay, so it's like it pioneered techniques like close-ups, like fade-outs, uh, it had a musical score for an orchestra for the first time. Um, and it was unfortunately also largely responsible for the massive resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th ah. century. Um, so yeah, so... By 1915, uh, the KKK had been almost wiped out. It had been heavily suppressed by the government. Uh, but this film, the kind of awful way black people were portrayed, um, especially in contrast to the heroic, noble way the KKK members were portrayed, uh, led some prominent twats to rally around the film and kind of used it, used it as propaganda to bolster right. refounding the KKK. Um, and so from almost zero, the Klan grew to millions by the mid-20s, and historians do put a large portion of the blame on this film. So it's worth watching if you've got the patience. I watched bits and pieces, and it's interesting. But it is horrifying at the same time. I could not have sat there and watched the whole thing, even if I had the attention span. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I've got the emotional bandwidth. Bandwidth. <laughs> bandwidth, like a sandwich. <laughs> I don't have a sandwich. <laughs> Not a <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so that's that. That's what I was trying to remember and did not. Yeah, well, I'm glad you remembered. Thank you. Uh, dispatches from the round world. Oh, yay, people contact us. Yes, people have spoken to us. There's lots of feedback on the uh, conversation we recorded about the watch panel. Our hour-long grunt. Uh, yeah. Before I go into that, though, uh, Stacey on Instagram uh, may have pointed out that I made a little mistake. And um, when I was talking about how much I fancy Lauren Bacall in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I meant Jane Russell. Oh, OK. Lauren Bacall was in How to Marry a Millionaire. I mean, Lauren Bacall is still stunning, but I was particularly talking about the absolutely stunning Jane Russell. Yes, I do fancy both of them. OK, good, good. But That's... I did mix up my silver screen starlets there. I'm glad someone can call you out on these things, because obviously I cannot. Yeah. Uh Andy on Twitter mentioned about Jaws that one of the other reasons you don't see a shark a lot is because the shark also kept breaking and was constantly being repaired. <laughs> the more really I learn about this film, the more I like it. <laughs> and reminded us that Marina and the Diamonds Hollywood is 10 years old, so I'm ancient. Is it now? Yep. God, still on, fucking amazing though. On, uh, when we were talking about grief the other day and this idea of focusing on really tiny details, right, we couldn't remember what book yep. that from. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Varying things. Eventually remembered that it was from Equal Rights and it is uh -huh. when Esk is very focused on the blanket that her mother made when she thinks that uh, Granny has passed away. Cool, cool. Okay. Luckily, Granny ain't dead. She ain't indeed. Uh, and Rianne, back on the actual watch thing, has pointed out that it's about seven, there's about 17-year age gap between Laura Rossi, who is playing Sybil Vimes, and Richard Dormer, who is playing Sam Vimes. Well, I'm so, glad uh, somebody can use Google properly. Yep. Thank you for doing our research for us. And yes, that is kind of gross. I'm not saying like all age not gaps are bad. Not the worst, but it's... No. 
Yeah, hashtag like, not just, all age gaps, just like most of them. But <laughs> like, let people date people their own age on TV. Women don't yeah. have to be young. It's not that each individual age gap that length is problematic. It is the fact that they are all that gap is problematic. It's the, yes, it's, it's the fact that, that it's young, very, very young women and older men are always portrayed together, and yeah. that perpetuates a kind of narrative because that women entitled older men use to their advantage. Yes, and also perpetuates the narrative that older women uh, lose social currency as they age. Yes, which frankly um, and bollocks to that. God no, I'm fantastic now. <laughs> Getting more fantastic by the day, darling. Yes, so thank you for everyone who's gotten in touch with us. And don't forget that you can email us and tweet us and Instagram us. We'll tell you how at the end if you want to pop up on the podcast. And you have a, you have a, we have a YouTube channel now, so you can watch that entire hour-long grump about the watch if you want to hear our opinions on that. Um, I have a lovely wine glass and look like a supervillain in the video. She does. Definite benevolent tyrant vibes. Well, I was barely benevolent at some points. <laughs> there was very little benevolence during that recording cool so on to what Rancy, we're would you? doing today yes i would yes i would i don't yes. even need to would let you? you finish that sentence would you um <laughs> da, 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 da. summarize the last part of the book da, 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 da. yes i will what happened previously on good omens previously good on good omens. omens oh god i haven't prepared at all <laughs> <laughs> Moving pictures. Previous. Not sure where Good Omens came from. <laughs> Previously on Moving Pictures, Victor and Ginger shoot to stardom and with it significantly stepped up salaries. But their work on Dibbler's delightful feature-length films is stunted by Ginger's propensity to scrabble at sandy slabs past sundown. Meanwhile, Gaspode makes a friend-ish. The wizards keep an eye on the plebs and two trolls struggle to speak the language of love against the backdrop of a world gone mad with 1,000 elephants ish we left for intermission just as filming finished on diddler's masterwork blown away so has everyone got their popped corn for part three they banged grains yes <laughs> oh, i could really eat some popcorn right now actually yeah we should have thought about this we could have had, well no actually we'd have just crunched into the microphone for an hour and a half but yeah. we'd have been happy <laughs> yes we might have triggered any listeners with misophonia the scone episode was bad enough yeah i expect we do that on the regular anyway considering how often we forget to mute while we're drinking our coffees but yeah it's part true. of the experience yes the experience it's a feature it's not part a of bug. the journey <laughs> all right <laughs> summarize for us joanna part three what? So, in part three of Moving Pictures, as Velvet Knight drapes the parrot cage of holy wood, Detritus does a quick frighten, just to make sure, Dibbler watches the editing process and considers subliminal messaging, and Gaspode sleeps outside as Victor guards sleeping ginger. The resograph continues to plib as Gaspode and Laddie find Victor all tied up. The gang track a sleepwalking ginger to a mysterious tunnel and find a cinematic cave. Ginger tries to wake a mysterious statue that closely resembles my Uncle Oswald. Ginger wakes up as the tunnel collapses, trapping our ragtag bunch of misfits inside the cave. The dogs escape and seek trollish assistance to help out our heroes. Across town, in a sad bar, death has had enough, while Silverfish, Detritus and Gaspode drown their sorrows. Over in the Ramtop Mountains, the hordes of elephants fail to notice the Yeti. Holywood vanishes in fog as the gang head to Ankh-Morpork for the premiere of Blown Away. The senior wizards sneak out to the cliffs, cleverly hiding their identities with false false beards. Tragically, they can't get in. 
The Bursa panics as plibs continue. Fans go wild as Victor, Ginger and the Patrician arrive at the premiere. The Arch-Chancellor and the Bursa finally realise what those pesky alchemists have been up to and decide to go along to the pictures. The senior wizards sneak in at the back and discover the joy of special moving picture food. As the film starts, the audience is hypnotised and magic fills the air. Gaspode wakes Victor, who manages to stop the film, but reality is just too fucked to notice. The things from the dungeon dimensions break through using Ginger and Victor's screen presence. The picture house burns as the dogs play fetch and make a noble sacrifice. A giant cinematic Ginger thing lurches towards the library with a heroic Victor hot on her heels as the librarian observes from the roof. The thing clutches the librarian as it climbs the Tower of Art. Victor follows and fights the thing with aerial support from the Arch-Chancellor and the Bursa. As a lightning strike sends the thing to its untimely doom, Victor realises they need to head back to Holywood to set the reality back to rights. As the world becomes film, Victor and Ginger find Detritus holding up the cave entrance. The residents of Holywood sit entranced in the cage until Ginger, Victor and Detritus successfully awaken the Guardian. Everyone runs as Holywood collapses and reality returns. The last of the Holywood magic floats through the air as animals slowly lose their sapience. Victor and Ginger mourn what was, the elephants arrive at Ankh-Morpork, Silverfish returns to alchemy and most importantly of all, Gaspo lives. Otherwise, I would have thrown the book across the room. Absolutely. We did have the advantage of knowing this already, but even so, I was a little bit concerned. Well, they were going to like end it on a cliffhanger for him, you know? I couldn't quite remember. Yeah. I wouldn't have been okay if he hadn't clearly gone out. No, wouldn't be happy with that. No. Did you enjoy it? I did. Climax, good. Yeah, me too. Thought it was lovely. It was fun, very fast moving, very classic cinematic. Climax, I think. Classic cinematic climax is some excellent alliteration there. Yes. Now, is there, right, is there so, something you would like to highlight for us, Joanna? Something slightly more connected than usual, perhaps? Yes. Uh, helicopter and loincloth watch. I am calling the aerial support provided by the Arch-Chancellor and Bursa on a broomstick as a helicopter. And I, I think that's actually a fair one for once. Um that is it's more- clearly going for a similar cinematic effect to a helicopter. Yeah. In the original King Kong, was it like little planes doing it? I know it's yeah, helicopters so. in some of the later ones, though, so it counts. It's fine. But <laughs> Yeah. There's definitely a hint of helicopter about this. Also, <laughs> loincloths strongly implied. Where? Just in general. Oh, okay. Cool, 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 cool. Just general loincloths. No, really, they were. I think this is possibly the only part where you can't say that. Trolls probably wearing yeah, them. Okay, fine. <laughs> Sorry, is that is that elementalist? No, I'm going to say no. Thank you. So we haven't. So favorite quotes? honorable mention quote I think comes first in the chronology, and that's yours. So yeah, I uh, I didn't want to put this as my actual quote, but it made me giggle. This is when the trolls have rescued Victor and Ginger from the cave, and they have a misunderstanding of what's going on. And Rock says, "Ah, she's wearing a very pretty silk negligible." which is how I will always say the word negligee from now on. <laughs> the negligee may be may be giggle. Also, he asked if they found a nice place to indulge in a bit of what is the health of your parent. <laughs> which is also how I'm going to refer to sex from now on when I'm not saying go, so thank you, Joe. <laughs> All right. To turn it back to some uh, nice, beautiful, pratty description. Mine's on page 251 as Victor stumbles out of the darkness and into the light. And says, yes, it all seemed much less horrifying in the cold light of day. And that's just what it was. Cold light. 
the room was full of a kind of light you got when you woke up on a winter's morning and knew by the light that it had snowed. It was a light without shadows. He went to the window and looked out on a pale silver glow. Holywood had vanished. The visions of the night fountained up in his mind again as the darkness returns when the light goes out. That is love. That was nearly my quote. It's creepy as fuck, isn't it? Love it. I love that. He does. He, there's some good, like, bits of sort of horror writing mm, absolutely. in this section of the book. I think he really enjoys was, the fog and, like, the weird way the fog drifts and stuff. Like, I don't know if it's, like, smoke machines he's thinking of. And Yeah. We haven't had a really good foggy morning since the weather's turned. I'm really looking forward mm, to yeah. that. I love walking to work early morning in the fog. Uh, so mine is not a beautiful bit of description. I went with a silly mm-hmm. one because this is possibly my favourite moment in the book. Victor drew himself up to his full height. There are some things, he said, that a man has to do by himself. Ginger gave him a look of irritated incomprehension. What? Do you want to go to the lavatory or something? <laughs> irritated incomprehension is very much our expression. So that's fantastic. <laughs> I am... Um, permanently in a state of irritated incomprehension (laughs) but also I am a sucker for the trope of a man trying to be noble and heroic and a woman going look you're being very silly do you need the loo you should have gone before we left (laughs) you should have gone before things from the dungeon dimension broke through speaking of sensible women our first character yeah I didn't really need to highlight this as a character so we've got some newish ones some we've met in previous books and some I just wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. again and I am starting with Mrs Cosmopolite who we mentioned earlier in the book as uh, having some very sensible philosophies but also she's a dirty old woman and I love a dirty old woman Uh, she gives Victor a big smile and a complicated elbow intensive gesture that he felt certain (laughs) sweet little old ladies shouldn't know some very nanny oggish vibes she has got an Annie Irish life. She's had four husbands. <laughs> She's willing to take on another four if uh, Ginger didn't want any of the men that proposed to her. And yeah, I love it. I love the idea of her having a harem of rich men. I mean, that's what I want. Well, that's what I assume you're working towards every day. Yes, absolutely. Um, speaking of rich men, just segueing all women. over the place today, ricocheting the uh, patrician. Check you out. Oh. Yeah. Being a little bit irked that he's not being recognised is quite sweet. I yeah, uh, I like I like that he's sort of uh, well, all right, fine. They're famous, but I run the city. Yes. It's not that I want to be recognised. You understand? It's just that it's a little vexing that I'm not. <laughs> yes. There's also a great line. Uh, Dibbler and is sort of explaining how bits of the moving pictures are made and. Uh, he had not got where he was today by bothering with how things worked. It was how people worked that intrigued yes. him. Very good. And that's a nice thing. He's found his bit of expertise and uh, everyone else can sort of crack on and make what they're making. Yeah. So we're calling the Yeti a character, are we? Oh, I mean, well, it is a character, so not fair. But... They are characters. It's th- this is the first time we've come across Discworld Yeti. First and high... last for a little while. Yeah, I don't remember them coming up again, but that's not to say Deep they don't. Time? Oh, yes, good point. I haven't read that one for a very long time. Spoilers. It's not spoilers, spoilers, Joanna. (laughs) (laughs) Weird shit turns up in future Discworld books. Spoiler, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't come here for weird shit. (laughs) Oh, no, well, you're going to be very disappointed. And I'm also very (laughs) confused as to how bad your memory is. (laughs) Sorry, anyway, yetis, yes. 
Yes, these are a high altitude species of troll and quite unaware that eating people is out of fashion. <laughs> so I like they're uh, going to lie down in the snow and uh, they're going to panic the elephants and eat them. And they lie down in the snow and they're very right. The uh, elephants don't notice them on their elephant bobsleighs. Yeah, I'm not sure what the ultimate plan was there, but they... <laughs> well, they may not have realised quite how many elephants they were trying to sneak up on. Well, sure, but how many elephants need to trample you before it becomes a bad idea? Good point. Probably not the full 1,000. I... I don't think we're quite at 1,000 yet at that point. No, probably not yet. And... I like how it's always I mean, spelt um, with A1,000 elephants. Yeah, <laughs> with A... A kilo of <laughs> Um The Guardian, otherwise known as Oscar, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. So the Guardian is supposed to look like an Oscar statue, which uh, allows me to pull out one of my favourite little bits of trivia, which oh, is on. the fact that... Also, the Oscars are the Academy Awards. They're not technically... The Os- Oscars is a nickname, sure. and it's in this game for the statuette. That and I don't know how true this is. It might be a bit of an apocryphal story, but apparently it comes from uh, someone who worked for the Academy, looking at the statue and going, "Oh, he looks just like my uncle Oscar." I wonder how apocryphal that is. It became so widespread. Someone said it at some point. I think many, yeah. many different people have claimed it. But I didn't realise how quickly it went from a nickname to this is what they're called. The first time someone referred to it as an Oscar in an acceptance speech was in the mid-1930s, and I believe it was Walt Disney. Oh, wow. So that was early doors, yeah. I thought the Oscars and the Academy Awards were different things quite well. Yes, so did I. Uh, But then I've never... The only bit of award season I've ever really followed is what people are wearing, because I like looking at pretty dresses. Aw. Talking of pretty dresses, wizards. (laughs) You, I'm Sorry, loving, robes, robes. <laughs> loving your I'm trying to find the most today. tenuous segues I can today. <laughs> yeah, so we've kind of mentioned these the wizards, but like this is the senior fa- senior faculty of the uh, university, and mild spoiler that we'll like, get to hang out with them again. And there's Yay. so the chair of indefinite studies, the dean, uh, lecturer in recent rooms. The dean is actually the dean of pentacles, and of course, Windle Poons, the oldest wizard in the world. Yeah, he's great. Love Windle I Poons. forgot how much of a kind of role he had in this one. Yeah, but I really love their sort of talking about the poster for Blown Away, Victor and Ginger. And they're talking about Ginger. There's a girl who's got it. And none of them can really actually put things into world. So he sort of says, you know, it, oomph, the old way, hey, hey. <laughs> and they're all sort of slightly wistful. Apart uh, from the Dean. Yes. Says, we didn't know the meaning of the word sex when we were young. That's true. That's very true, said Poons. Didn't we ever find out? Do you remember? (laughs) I like how right from the start, the Dean is kind of this bullied figure. The Dean is But like for a good reason. (laughs) Yeah, he's such a nerd. He gets the line, um, Twas beauty killed the beast at the end when the thing has died, which is the last line from King Kong. But it's just... I could have easily read that and not known it was from a film because that is also just the sort of thing the Dean would say. Yes. <laughs> I like how he was like, well, I wouldn't know. I was back in my room studying. <laughs> the lecturer of runes or someone's like, yes, you were, weren't you? I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Bless the Dean. I like the different faculty titles 
And that's something I'll probably go into in a future book, just because I think they're wonderful bits of nonsense. Chair of Indefinite Studies is one of my favourites. Yeah. There are some great faculty titles as we get into Wizardy Books. Also, I didn't make this name this as its own character, but I possibly should have done, which is Poons's Wheelchair. I've got in my notes, Windle Poons Chair dash character. So, yeah. <laughs> I thought about it. Wide and long, steered by means of a little front wheel, a long cast iron handle. Baroque ironwork adorns its frame, which is apparently assembled out of iron drain pipes. There were various dread levers, which only Poons knew the purpose of. <laughs> a huge oil skin hood uh, that could probably protect its resident from meteor strikes and falling buildings. This is like steampunk beauty, isn't it? By way of light relief, the front handle was adorned with a selection of trumpets, hooters and whistles, with which Poons wasn't want to announce his progress around the passages and quadrangles of the university. I love it. I want to try and draw this. I I want to basically be Windle Poons when I grow up, in that I just want to be a mad old person in a ridiculous tricked-out wheelchair with loads of like trumpets and horns on it. Well, he's 130, so you've got plenty of time to get building. Excellent. Good. I'll add that to the to-do list right behind trimming my sage plant. Yeah. So the most important of the bunch, well, the Arch Chancellor is the most important, yes. Riz Cully, and then you've got Bursar, who hangs out with him for almost the entire last part of the book. Yes. There's uh, a little thing here that I want to remember when we get into future wizard storylines in future books. Uh, when the bursar says, I think I'm going mad. Now, now, said the Arch-Chancellor. You don't want to go around talking like that. That's crazy talk. <laughs> Which really sums up their entire dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> I also like the bit where the bursar finally snaps near the end. Rid Cully says something like can't stand vegetables thins the blood and Bursa says there was a pause and the farmers heard the other voice say well I'm very sorry about that you bloodthirsty overbearing tub of lard there was another pause then can I sack you Bursa no Arch Chancellor I've got tenure in that case help me out let's go and find a drink <laughs> it's a wonderful practical way of looking at it <laughs> it's lovely I love their relationship yeah <laughs> as we have said many times before we do love Ridcully. Ridcully is the most ridiculously practical wizard i like the fact that he's learned how to use a magic mirror just so he can go hunting yes i do enjoy that greatly uh so death is here yeah uh which uh for those keeping track we well death's already turned up in this book once yes this continues our theme i like that he sort of d- this happens in quite a few books where death is, pops in at the beginning and then gets another moment near the end. He sort of brackets yeah. the books. He's like a memento mori of each book. Yes. Uh, so death is in the sort of sad bar because apparently he quite likes the atmosphere. Yeah, it's amazing how well you can visualise the bar as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. We have all been in this sad bar with an oddly yeah. cheery barman. <laughs> I've occasionally been the oddly cheery barmaid. Yes. <laughs> in a sad bar. <sighs> so Death is very movie at the end, isn't he? He rides in a purple haze and does like a one-liner, which isn't very him, really. No, but he's picked up a but little bit the of point, the Hollywood. Yeah. yeah, he gets a little bit ahead. To be fair, Death does pick things up very easily. He's a bit... He does. He's quite porous. He's He's a bit spongy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about spongy spongy death next month in the meantime okay. <laughs> let's revisit victor and ginger yes oh uh, yes grim 
Uh, I put in my notes, he ain't getting any. <laughs> Just when he's uh, keeping an eye on Ginger to try and avoid her sleepwalking. Yes. And is sort of sulking in a, it's not that I want to, it's just that if this were like the clicks, then we would be passionate yeah. in a world gone mad. And instead I'm sitting in a very uncomfortable chair while she sleeps. Yes. It, it, it's just that it definitely wouldn't be this that were happening. That's all. Yes. <laughs> if nothing else, I'd possibly be slightly more comfortable. Yeah. They are getting on a little better. Um, although Trace, not Tracy, sorry. Look, this is how easy they are to get mixed up. Yeah. Although Ginger... Uh, spends a, a lot of it being confused and upset, which is a bit annoying considering how good a character she is sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the Victor and Ginger at all, they sort of fizzle at the end and mm. you don't know if they've gone their... Se- you know, I'm Spoiler, but we don't see them again. We don't know if they've yeah. gone their separate ways or if they've had a bit of a romantic sunset kiss somewhere. I think that's almost like a good thing, though, because the point is once the magic's gone yeah. from the world, like it would fizzle, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, like so I put in the books, there's kind of a parallel to Tepic and Tracy and Morton and Isabel. Morton and Isabel yeah. end up together once Mort gets over the princess he thinks he's in love with yeah. and realise that quite practically they are the best thing for each other. And, oh, well, yes, okay, apparently we're in love with each other. Marvellous. Fine. Crack on. <laughs> and Tepic and Tracy sort of have this, hmm, bit of chemistry. Oh, you're my sister, never mind. Oh, okay then. <laughs> Let's not. And for Victor and Ginger, there's the similar... They start the same way as Tepic and Tracy and Morton and Isabel, where they're sort of the sniping at each other. Yeah. And uh, But yes, they sort of fizzle off into nothing. And that's quite... It's quite sweet in its own way. I like to think they just stayed friends. They stayed like, friends. They probably had a kiss to see what it was like. Like, nah, it's not, not really working, is it? Yeah. And they no. just kept in touch over the years as they went along their different careers. What do you think Victor ended up doing? I don't know. I mean, I, he definitely didn't go back into wizardry. No. Maybe he became like a playwright or something. I could see him working at the disc. Yeah. And and then Ginger. I like to think Ginger opened a bar. Yeah. I could see her as, you know, kind of sassy barmaid. This is my place. Yeah, maybe one that puts on live performances and things. Yeah, Ruby comes and performs every now and then. Yeah. She stayed in touch with some of the Hollywood people. Ginger does stand up. Mm. Yes, Ginger does stand up about how much she hates milking goats. Yeah, cool. All right, well, that's good. We wrote their endings. Uh- <laughs> Sorted. If you have alternative endings, listeners, let us know. Uh, oh, Ru- yeah, Ruby and Detritus. Finally. Yes, this is the big sweeping snog at the end, sort of. Yes, this is the real romance of the book. Yes, this is the true romance of the book. It makes me very happy when we get to the end and some of the last of the Hollywood magic is uh, those two in Shamhagas, but they end up dancing. Play it again, Sham. Which, okay, so I did look this up because I, I knew that was from Casablanca. Uh-huh. I, I knew famously it's a misquotation. Oh, is it? Yes. Uh, and I was trying to find what the actual line was. And a lot of things said, it's play it, Sam. It's kind of hard to find because play it again, Sam, is also the title of a Woody Allen play. Ah. Uh, this quote is from someone who wrote in to complain about a Guardian crossword clue. <laughs> Good, carry on. <laughs> play it again, Sam. So widely misquoted. No, play it, Sam. So widely misquoted as play it again, Sam. Wasn't even spoken by Humphrey Bogart, but by Ingrid Bergman. Uh, however, is often 
is so often with the case with things that everything knows, the sentence above is wrong in almost every particular. What Bergman actually said was, play it once, Sam, for old time's sake. Uh, and then when Sam pretended not to know what she was talking about, she goes on to say, play it, Sam, play as time goes by. See, as I think Pratchett would say something like, uh, the story's become more true than the truth. Oh, absolutely. But as someone was persnickety enough about it to write in and complain about a Guardian crossword clue. I fucking love me some complaint letters, I'll tell you that. So I'm, I'm happy to have heard that. <laughs> so yes. I've really got to get some green ink. <laughs> what, for writing complaint letters? Yes. Um, my, uh, my old boss, John, let me know that back in the day when people hand wrote letters, the weirdos always wrote in green ink. And so if you got a letter in green ink, you know knew it would be a rambling complaint letter. Oh, there was something similar. Jay Rayner's mentioned something similar about the letters. His mother, because his mother, Claire Rayner, was obviously quite a famous agony aunt, among other things. Ah. And she would quite often get odd letters in green ink. Yeah. Has anyone sent us an agony aunt question yet, by the way? Uh, no. Listeners, please Completely send us... Completely understandable. <laughs> please send us your agony aunt problems. <laughs> So we can desperately mine your lives for content. (laughs) (laughs) On the nose, mate. (laughs) Speaking of on the nose, because he's a dog. Oh, wait, no, there was one other... Oh, fuck, sorry, yeah. Just the other movie reference bit in uh, Ruby and Detritus Dancing, which is uh, they do Let's Face the Music and Dance, which is a lovely friend, Astaire and Ginger Rogers piece from a movie called Follow the Fleet. I watched it. This gave me an excuse because that was end, end up being the last note I made as I was planning this episode. So I could finish episode planning by watching that again. I'll link to it in the oh, show nice. notes. It's a little bit surreal because it's a 1930s movie dance number. What's it called, sorry? Um, the movie is called Follow the Fleet. Follow the Fleet. Okay. The song is called Let's Face the Music and Dance. Cool. Anyway. Are Fred and Ginger Roger movies like normal length? They are 1930s musical length, so no, because they've got intervals and shit. Okay, right, cool. I'll just watch the YouTube clip of that bit then. Um, <laughs> so Gaspode, Gaspode. last character we've got on here. Um, I'm just mentioning him again because he makes me sad through this. Like, he's got Laddie as a friend, and I like the fact that they're friends. But it's like, I feel like Victor should be standing up for Gaspode at points where like Silverfish is saying stuff like, oh, clever dog. And then it turns out he's talking about Laddie and Gaspo kind of deflates. And it's like, Victor, you know Gaspo can understand you. Why don't you just say something like, oh, no, Gaspo's very clever as well. Victor's yeah. a bit self-absorbed twat yeah. when it comes to Gaspo. Considering really like what a helpful little dog Gaspo's being, and he doesn't have to be. He's just being nice. I think because Gaspo kind of gets a lot of his sentience when the Hollywood magic starts. Mm. Uh, Vi- so I think Victor's kind of like a the equivalent of a first boyfriend for Gaspode. Like this is the first human he sort of attached himself to since he got sentient. Yeah. So yeah. he's like stuck in this really unequal relationship and Victor's a real dick. And after this, he's going to like find nicer humans to hang around. I'm a bit emotional at the moment, but yeah, it made me like cry a little bit at the end where he had to drag himself out of the building. Yes. The laddie got rescued. Yeah. Justice. I'm very sensitive about dogs now since I got a dog. Like, I can't really watch or read anything where a dog gets hurt or is sad. Yeah, that's fair. So, So, yeah, justice for Gaspode. We will build a statue to him. Yes, we will. Possibly. If he wants to wee on it, that's his statue. Yeah. That's his prerogative. I mean, we will be building (laughs) it. It's my statue, and I'll wee on it if I want to. (laughs) 
we will be making this out of like toothpicks and paper mache. Yeah, yeah. Well, neither of us are sculptors, let's be honest. <sighs> Fair. Right, locations. Location, location, location. That is the one. So the cinema temple, the underground in the cave mm-hmm. is kind of creepy, the big creepy. one. So creepy, full of skeletons. And I love how this is written. Mm-hmm. Uh, the description of the screen is this sort of hanging wall of mercury yeah. with nothing it's attached to. And just the creeping horror of it. As, like, if you can imagine sort of Victor walking into this cave and seeing the screen yeah. and then slowly realising, like, oh, these seats are all full of skeletons. Yeah, and you need to take the time to, like, imagine the smell as well. Yeah, the like sort of mould and damp. And, yeah, and the weird echoey acoustics you'd get in an empty cinema. And, yeah, mm. it's a proper good horror scene. It is excellent. And especially because although we quite quickly recognise it for what it is. Victor's obviously never seen a, a what's it called, a, a, a movie pit, did they call it? A film yeah, pit. yeah. Um, a cinema. And it's Pratchett's trick again of describing something that's very familiar to us through kind of Discworld eyes. Yes. And so like piecing it together from an abstract thing, it's almost like he starts painting a picture from random little details and it takes a little while before you realise what it is. I always like it when he does that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of what this book does and this is a thing he does a few times where he brings a round world concept to the Discworld and you get to see it slowly flourish yeah. through Discworld eyes. Yeah. And it's really lovely. But yeah, uh, that's a good location. It's a good location. It's a really good scene. Uh, tiny shout out. Uh, we don't actually go here, but when the Arch-Chancellor and the Bursa are looking at the map and it says, here be dragons, the Bursa says, oh, that's just Lady Ramkin's Sunshine Sanctuary for sick dragons. Yay. So Sybil's here. She's in our hearts. She's there. She's over there. <laughs> Having a nice time caring for dragons. Yes, I'm glad she's doing that. Courting, Sam. Courting. That's what she'd call it, I'm sure. She would definitely call it courting. Sam will be going along with it, feeling a bit yeah. bemused. <laughs> um, another cinema, slightly less mouldy. The Odium in Ankh-Morpork. Uh, there's a lovely line... Um, an inviolable rule about buildings for the showing of moving pictures applicable throughout the multiverse is that the ghastliness of the architecture around the back is inversely proportional to the gloriousness of the architecture at the front. Can you confirm? Absolutely. The back of our cinema looks disgusting, especially because that's where we have like a bunch of crappy stock rooms and the little smoking shelter. Excellent. Good to know. It's all quite terrible. Uh, so yes, I just like that for the accuracy. However, also with where our back entrance is, there's no way to sneak into the screens. Oh, that's good to know. Yes. Just in case okay. anyone was wondering. I can't, do you know what? Even when I was like a little rebellious teenager or whatever, I didn't do that because I just get so nervous about being told off. Yeah. <laughs> my teenage rebellions were very low risk. Yeah. I mean, not for like my physical health, but for getting caught. Yeah. Um, you've got National Anthem down as location, so... Well, okay. Go for it, I guess. And Morpork <laughs> is the location, but I believe this is the first time we get reference to the Ankh-Morpian civic anthem. We can rule you, you. I'll try that again. Mm. We can rule you wholesale. Is it? Is it the first time we've heard that? We didn't get it in one of the first two. We might have done. This is the first time I remember it. I forget yeah. stuff a lot. Yeah, me too. It's been like a year now, obviously. So. 
yeah next month it'll be a year since the next month is the podcast first birthday yeah oh i might make a cake just like eat it in front of me on the cam nice yeah (laughs) or like bring you cake okay that could work (laughs) cool so do you want to take a five minutes yes let's do that let's have an intermission Go and buy an ice cream off the lady with the tray that's weirdly hanging out in the corner there. Yeah, that's Ooh. kind of awkward. Who let her in? <laughs> I feel like I should offer a cup of tea. See in a sec. Yeah, so little bits we liked. And we're going to start with the fact that trolls are working on their PR. Oh, yeah. The Silicon Anti-Defamation League <laughs> will come down on you like a ton of rectangular building things if you eat people. <laughs> yeah it's um do you remember if that gets brought up again the silicon anti-defamation league it definitely gets a few more mentions yeah it sounds familiar enough that it can't just be this one but um Uh, that's so funny i well i kind of just like the idea of you know how these sapient species are actually looking at integrating into society and it moves the books on from being a straight fantasy parody to thinking more about how this world works yeah absolutely i think we get something similar with other species later on don't we and like yeah, we'll get this with a few different species. Yeah. Um, I wonder who runs the PR campaign. <laughs> I'm, uh, well, actually, no, Chrysoface has been mentioned, or at least the Chrysoface family. Yes, as as the kind of mafia already, wasn't it? N- no, and- I don't think they're quite mafia-like yet, but in Colour of Magic, like, there is definitely a troll named Chrysoface. They're still Well, living- in Weird Sisters, uh, it's them, they borrow money off to build the... Oh, yes, they do. You're right. So yeah, I'm assuming Christface yeah. is uh, started the Silicon Anti Defamation League. Yeah, it's one of his more legitimate business outlets. <coughs> <laughs> legitimate. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, that was all I had to say. I just enjoy that they're uh, they're working on their PR as they join the civilized sapient species. Absolutely. Um, cartography. Mm-hmm. The. When the Arch-Chancellor and Bursa are looking at the map and it says, here be dragons and uh, terror incognita, and Bursa says, well, that's probably more interesting than just putting in a load of cabbage farms. Yeah. And there's been a few jokes in the books before that there are towns that sort of exist because it's embarrassing for there to be that much blank space on the map. Yeah, absolutely. So I did start kind of looking into the history of cartography and these drawings of maps that were as much about putting things like here be dragons and artistic license as they were about actual maps. And uh, yeah, so cartography is a cool rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. I couldn't actually find much on what I was looking for because it's such a specific thing to try and search. But in reading on map making in general, I came across Polynesian stick charts, which are the coolest kind of map I've ever seen and uh, still used in some Pacific Islander cultures to this day. And these are 3D maps that show currents and water movements using uh, sticks tied together with uh, beads and shells worked in to show where the islands are. I'll link to some stuff about it in the show notes, but they are very cool. That's very cool. I like that. Yeah. I really liked the term cartographic furniture he used to kind of describe all of the, um, like the random yes. pictures of animals and waves everywhere. Twiddly bits that kind of, of cartographic map. furniture. Yeah, Considering that- I'm shit at navigation and a map for a practical purpose is useless to me the more ornate and ridiculous the better yeah so i love the maps in lord of the rings yeah yeah they are beautiful 
yeah, definitely one of these people, and you are as well, who like spends a very long time looking at the maps in fantasy books. Yeah, I love when fantasy books have maps. The yeah. Discworld Atlas with the huge map is amazing, and I yeah. still want to get it framed and put it up somewhere. Oh, such a big frame. <laughs> it is It is huge, but it is very cool. We've, I've stopped doing the thing where I put like post-its on the map to work out where we are in each book, because uh, I don't have anywhere to hang the map at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if I manage to hang it, then that will become a thing. Good. So cinemas have their own little range of snacks and I feel like different things taste different in a cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the wizards go in to watch a film for the first time, they come back to the seats with armfuls of snacks, as is tradition. Of course. They have popcorn and chocolate-covered raisins because they're heathens. Um, oh, yeah, chocolate-covered what raisins are, your are the worst. What are your favourite cinema snacks? I, I, for me, I've got salted popcorn, Skittles and Fanta. I've narrowed it down to. Okay, so big fizzy drink is a necessity. Mm-hmm. But I'm biased on this because the cinema I tend to go to is the one I work at where you mm-hmm. can do things like taking in a glass of wine. Yeah, can we pretend we're not doing fine dining and go yeah. for movie snacks? <laughs> so actual movie cheese snacks. Cheese board and glass of wine is not a legitimate answer for this question. <laughs> we don't do cheese boards, but we do have a rather good baked goods selection. Uh, I did learn the you hard way... You say so yourself. <laughs> I went to watch the National Theatre live production of Hamlet with Benedict Cumberbatch in the cinema and uh-huh. we had just at, at work and we had just started selling jerky as a cinema snack and I love jerky so I got yeah. a bag. That is not a good cinema snack. I was so conscious of how loud I was eating it. Oh, is it like a like a smacking kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. So oh, no. don't eat jerky in the cinema. I, mean, I, I was won't, so but... self-conscious. <laughs> love popcorn, salted popcorn or mixed, not just sweet. But I do like a bit of sweet yeah. in with my salted. Uh, See, so Jack likes mixed popcorn as well, and I will compromise on that. Yeah. Movie watching at home, uh, I will make my own popcorn and add like maple syrup and sriracha and loads of butter and stuff, and it's beautiful. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah, big cold fizzy drink. What I fizzy have. Drink? Uh, see, I am a Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi person. Yeah, I like a Diet Coke too. Fan- at, like the cinema is the only time I'll have Fanta really, but even then sometimes I'll get a Diet Coke. I just don't like how fuzzy my teeth feel after a sugar drink. Yeah. Um, also, bit of a soft spot for terrible cinema nachos, as in just a c- plastic tray of warm tortilla chips with a little foil-covered pot of horrible orange cheese. Oh, I see that for me because I can't wash my hands straight away. I have a thing about having sticky hands. I have a... Yeah, this is why I always carry wet wipes. Ah, good idea, yeah. Yeah. And I used to get very excited about getting a tiny little pot of ice cream at the cinema, even though yeah. you inevitably finish it before the film actually starts. With the little fucking... it was going to melt. With the little plastic spoon. Yeah, or even better, the little uh, cut wooden yes. stick that you got to eat it with. It wasn't even shaped as a spoon half the time. Part of this attachment comes from the fact that, to this day, one of the only places now that you can get my favourite favour of Ben and Jerry's in the UK is at cinemas. Like, they oh. don't seem to sell it in supermarkets anymore. Which one's that? Cherry Garcia. So it's the best one. Yeah, that is the best one. I wondered. I hadn't seen it in a while. I was just You can get the frozen yogurt, but you can't get the ice cream yeah. version. And the frozen yogurt version is nonsense. I don't hold with it. I don't mind it. But if there's an ice cream flavour I like, I'll get that instead. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Then small joy is eating a tiny tub of Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia at the cinema. Do you have a favourite ice cream flavour that's not Ben and Jerry's? I really like just plain chocolate ice cream. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. See, I'm banana for me. Oh, Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't like banana anything, to be fair. I, know I don't, don't like yeah. 
bananas and iron. I'm wearing my librarian socks today. I can't really <laughs> bend my foot to show you. I already did yoga today. We could probably sell that. <laughs> okay, actually, I'm wearing one librarian sock and one death sock. That seemed appropriate for this section of the Very book. Very good. <laughs> uh, that's wh- what you did, that is it. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Not just because they were the first socks I pulled out of the drawer. <laughs> uh, whip, 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 Francine. Uh, yes, whip, whip, as you quite rightly say, whip. Uh, I just rather liked the sound effect that uh, Terry Pratchett put down for a flaming hot reel of film. It goes, a red hot film can sized over the heads of the recumbent wizard, making a menacing whip, whip, whip noise and exploded against a distant wall. Very much just a little thing I liked. I really like um, sound effects. Uh, what is it? It's not quite onomatopoeia, is it? Non- is it? I would say that's yeah. sort of onomatopoeic, as in yeah. it literally just describes the yeah. word... He doesn't use a real word to describe the sound. He just yeah. writes the sound down. Yeah. So yeah, whip, whip, whip. Just like plib. Yes. He's very plib good on the math peers in this. There are, there are. I enjoy just the word plib. <laughs> um, your one's next, my love. Uh, yes. Getting to this point just in the nick of time. <laughs> this is uh, when Victor is running up the tower to fight the thing. And he's sort of realised, you know, he's going to arrive in the nick of time. And then he's thinking, oh, maybe I could stop and have a rest if I'm definitely going to arrive in the nick of time. And then yeah. realises he can't because that's not how it works. Yeah, you know, you've if you're going play to play along with it. Yeah, you've, you've very much got to play along with it. And it sort of ties in with the million to one chances. Yes. Uh, yeah. Happening nine times out of ten. It's the same sort of theme. Absolutely, yeah. He does it at the end, doesn't on. he? So he's like, we have to be the last ones out. That's how this is. This is how it's got to go. Yeah. And I like when narrative causality exists in these books and he's playing with it and he, things do go exactly as they have to. Yeah. I think it's things like that that are why Gaspode is still alive at the end. Yes. Yeah. I read somewhere that Pratchett wasn't intending to do that, like he was intending to kill him off. Mm. And I can't remember what changed his mind. I'll put that into follow-up notes. Yes. Because, like, how the fuck could you... What the fuck, Terry Pratchett? Well, I think the point... That would be, like, another bullet point of now the Hollywood magic is dead. Yes. This is the actual ending you get. Yeah. Like, in the same way that Victor and Ginger don't waltz off into the sunset madly in love. Mm. But Ruby and Detritus do, and that's what matters. Yes, absolutely. That's just a lucky coincidence. They happen to be the kind... Well, it's Hollywood magic that was kind of stopping them, wasn't it, almost? They get a little boost at the end, but finally... I love also that I, I forgot to mention when we were talking about them earlier and this is tangenting off again, but the fact that they get together by her just hitting him over the head. Yeah, she's like, oh, do you want? Do you know what? I'm just going to take control of him. This is- yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it the trollish way, yeah. but my way of the trollish way, which is I will hit some man over the head. Yes. You have to feel a little bit bad for detritus. He tried that right at the beginning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'm sure he's happy enough. Yes. Uh, elephants. Elephants, irrelevant elephant. Or fairly relevant because it's been running throughout the entire book. Or trampling, I suppose. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I just like the payoff from a running joke throughout the whole book. And it's one of those ones, I can't remember the name of the trope, but where it's better that you never see the outcome of it. Like you never get to see Dibbler's reaction and that's funnier than any reaction you could see in the book. Absolutely. Like, it's much better to leave that to the imagination. Also, yeah. another little cameo from Colin and Nobby. 
Yes. Always nice to see them. Now we're going, oh, let me tell them. Go on, please. <laughs> but I like that, you know, they got a thousand elephants to the gates of Ankh-Morpork. And did. I do wonder a bit what happened to these elephants afterwards. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope they didn't end up in sausages in a bun. No, they absolutely did not. I refuse to believe that. Um, as is tradition, I have an elephant fact. Uh, elephants are hypsodonts, which means they have continually growing teeth. Ah. And as their tusks are teeth, they're just modified teeth, like they have the tissue inside and everything. Mm. Um, they keep growing and they get kind of naturally worn down a bit in the wild. But in captivity, they often have to have tusk trims. Oh, yeah. It's a lovely. Yeah. Right. Should we go on to the bigger talking points? Yeah, we've got some fairly abstract ones today, which we I are. quite like, actually. Um, I do like an abstract concept on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, I'll start with like the smallest one, which is the one I got, which is the kind of hypnosis of cinema. And I'm not a big film fan, as we all know now, because I keep going on about it. Um, but I'm very susceptible to when I'm actually dragged into a cinema, I will sit there you know, mouth open in a very unattractive way. And I will fall for each one of the trailers going, oh, that looks good. Unless like it's really atrocious. Yeah. Um, I'll never get around to watching those movies. But in the moment, I absolutely believe I will. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll usually really enjoy the film, no matter what it is. If I get dragged to see it in the cinema, I will like it. It's just I don't really like to commit myself to that. Um, yeah. And there is something special about just having that massive fucking display up there i am totally the opposite i fall ah. asleep in the cinema so much that's interesting because you're more of the movie lover between us i far. love movies yeah. i love watching movies and i have forced myself into the habit when i'm at home now of not looking at my phone when i'm watching tv or watching a movie because that has killed my concentration and part yeah. of the reason i don't like going to the cinema is this having to just concentrate on one thing because you know i like my multiple inputs do you think you were better at, or did do you remember enjoying cinema more when you were younger than before we kind I of loved killed going ourselves to, with smartphones? <laughs> I loved going to the cinema when I was a kid. I loved going to see, you know, Disney stuff and animated yeah. stuff and the Harry Potter films. Obviously, you know, RIP to that part of our lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, not actually that great if you put any deep, deep thoughts into it. But which you didn't have to. That was the point. <laughs> yes. The thing, I still enjoy going to the cinema. Obviously, I'm not doing it at the moment because pandemic, but it's an option. And there are certain films that are great on the big screen. Um, yeah. I'm really lucky in that with where I work, we sometimes have like little private staff screenings as well. I've seen some great films I wouldn't have normally watched that I've got to be almost completely alone in the screen for, like my feet up and a beer in my hand. Yeah, that sounds amazing, yeah. Yeah, that's really fun. I love the private staff screenings, especially because you can like stretch out across four sofas. <laughs> yeah, because your cinema has sofas. Yes, my cinema has sofas. It's great. And also, I've seen a lot of uh, theatre stuff in cinema. We do a lot of National Theatre Live, and that's allowed me to see stuff I wouldn't get to see otherwise. And how does that compare to watching it in the theatre, then? It's not the same as watching it in a theatre, but it is very good. Mm -hmm. Next um, best thing, kind of. Yeah, they're often filmed over, like, say, a couple of nights so, and cut together. So you do get, like, interesting close-ups and cuts and shots. Mm -hmm. It's not just a camera on the stage for the entire thing. Sure. And you can... But it doesn't have that same palpable energy as being in the room and watching it. Yeah. It's not, uh, like, being in the room where it happens. Yeah. 
Sorry, that that will be really funny once you've seen Hamilton. Okay, cool. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I saw you were trying to do something there, and I was just hoping it would dawn on me, and it didn't. Okay, <laughs> that's all right. I it's haven't fine. seen that. <laughs> Not my fault. <laughs> you will get to see Hamilton, and then I can make lots of Hamilton references. Okay, okay, cool. <laughs> Uh, so it's a different thing, but it's enjoyable and that holds my attention a lot more. But it's also just if I sit down in a comfy chair and the room's dark yeah. and then I will quite often doze off. I'm so bad for it. I'm, I've forced myself to stay awake through Avengers Endgame because that was such a big epic movie that I really wanted to see in the cinema. Uh, and like the Star Wars films, the first one, those, The Force Awakens, I fell asleep about halfway through. Yeah. I fell asleep during one of the James Bond films that my boyfriend at the time took me to see. Because. Yeah you know um it was casino royale oh yeah no that's fair everyone could fall asleep with that well this is the other thing i don't go to the cinema often because i'm not that fussed about seeing a lot of films on the big screen yeah yeah like i'll quite happily like if it's i, I love chick flicks but i'll quite happily watch them on my tv at home yeah. it tends to be big stuff like star wars i will go to the cinema for and have the experience of yeah um, Mad Max Fury Road was incredible in the cinema well it's the stuff where, where the audio and the special that. effects really matter yeah Actually, that was a so one of the last times I went to the cinema pre you know lockdown and everything was for oh God, a, a serial killer's guide to life, which is an indie film that charity Wakefield is involved in, uh, who I'm a big fan of. She's a very good producer and things, but she's also a very good actor. She was in this great play, Amelia. She played Shakespeare. You got, was that when you got to meet her? Yes. Ah. So they we screened the film and she was there with uh, one of the actors and the director and uh, they did like a Q&A afterwards and I got to say hello. So that was fantastic. Yeah. And that was that was a tiny indie film. That wasn't a big blockbuster action thing, but it was amazing seeing it in the cinema because they'd worked so hard on the soundscape. There's very little music in the film. Uh, okay. And it's a lot of it is there's some lots of very bleak moments and staring off a cliff, staring off a cliff top or being sort of out in the country in the middle of nowhere. And there was very oh. subtle background sound. See, but... I almost feel like that might catch my attention better because it's like when someone does pauses well when they speak, it kind of mm. holds your attention, doesn't it? Yeah. So that was great. That was worth seeing. And that made me think maybe I should make more of an effort to see like good little indie films in the cinema. And then, yeah. But, <laughs> but there's a pandemic. <laughs> And I don't feel comfortable sitting in a cinema, even if everyone does keep their masks on. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so, fame and fandom. Yeah, this is a cool theme that kind of comes around in the last bit of the book as Victor and Ginger go to the premiere. And they've been so disconnected from the world of moving pictures outside of making them. Mm -hmm. They've never seen the reaction for that. I don't think they realise that but you know for Vic, ginger's aim is to become so famous and yet she doesn't quite realize that she has become so famous yeah until they yeah, doesn't hit get her until this <laughs> and there's all these interesting ideas about how people become celebrities and almost like you know people being famous for being famous because yeah. fame and fandom are two different things you know fame is yeah well they're both very nebulous and hard to describe. Well, fame is being recognised by a lot of people, isn't it? It's... Yeah. Fandom is is on the other side of it. Fandom is, you know, kind of what we engage in with the Discworld thing, yeah. which is the being particularly into something, which... Uh, well, I think fan I fandom as a concept is very internet era, isn't it? Cause... Well, you say that. I was doing a bit of research into the history of celebrity and fandom and things, okay. and one of the earliest examples of 
fandom that we think of as like internet fandom now uh-huh. is uh, Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And fans fans literally gathered to mourn when the character was killed off. And then wrote so many letters that he ended up being brought back. Yeah. I mean and I mean a- I knew I know like fan clubs and stuff existed and that but like a like a disparate group like that then that's quite cool yeah. Yeah and that's you know that's the thing. Uh there's lots of backgrounds about tv series say being saved from cancellation because they have devoted fandoms it happened with farscape um when firefly was cancelled early the fandom pressure was enough to get a movie made there was a fandom kickstarter that allowed veronica mars to end up getting a movie like this stuff happens a lot and it started like one of the earliest examples is sherlock holmes yeah which then i think he like regretted forever after he gave into that to be fair yeah, well, this is the darker side of fandom, which is that there becomes an entitlement to a property yeah. above and beyond what the author is willing to give. And you do see this happen nicely. Sometimes you see it with uh, like Patrick Rothfuss and the fact he hasn't released the third book in that trilogy mm. and the fans are kind of dickish to him about it. Well, there's a whole Stephen uh, King book about it, isn't there? Well, yeah, Carrie. Yeah. Not Carrie. Yeah. Uh, misery. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I misunderstood Carrie again. No, <laughs> <laughs> no Misery, yeah. which is a very good book. Very good film as well. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes we forget that the word fan comes from fanatic, which is an extreme yeah. word. And it's kind of, it's gone through that weird uh, meaning inflation mm. or deflation thing where um, we've had to come up with words like stan or super fan to describe the proper mentals now. Yeah, because um, fanatic alone isn't enough to. Yeah, which is weird. <laughs> it is weird. It's very intense. Yeah, I, and I guess when like we're talking about authors a lot because that's what we care about. But um, mm. when it gets to people who are seen as kind of movies, seen on movie screens, and valued a lot for their appearance and for for their person instead of what they've created. I think yeah. it like it can take an even more sinister tone, can't it? That's when you get stalkers and when you get Absolutely. This came up on a podcast I was listening to. I can't remember which one. One of the TV recap podcasts I was saying, and they were talking about, you know, there's a difference between writing fan fiction about a show mm-hmm. where you're writing about the characters, and there are people who write fan fiction about actual human beings, like mm-hmm. that they think should be together. Like uh and one of the nasty examples, so everything to do with Fifty Shades of Grey is obviously terrible and evil and it's an awful book. Yeah. Um, but after the film came out, the fa- like it has a very intense fandom, and the fans were so into the idea of the two lead actors actually being together that they were writing fan fiction. And, and bear in mind, like he's married to someone else very yeah. happily. They were nasty about it. They started saying horrible things about his wife. Yeah, this is... You you start off with that story and you're like, oh, I kind of get it. Teenager's going to teenage. It's still writing practice, isn't it? And then you're like, ah, yeah. and there it is. Yeah, it is creepy. Uh, so yeah, so there is definitely a dark side to fandom, which we're not engaging. But then I think this is something we sort of brought up when we were talking about The Watch. Like part of the reason we're so upset about this shit adaptation is because we feel very entitled to the work of Terry Pratchett because it's so important to us. That's it. And that's why I'm trying to moderate. Well, I'm clearly not trying very hard to moderate <laughs> my tone about it. But it's why I'm kind. I'm trying to avoid certain conversations around it. And yeah. um, who watches the, the watch? The other the, the podcast. Um, who, one of the other yeah, one of the newer one ones podcasts. who are wonderfully controversial. I always like that. Um, yeah. Tweeted recently about uh, how they they retweeted a pretty bad take someone had, basically, which was 
if you think you can improve on this or that, why would you even like the thing enough to adapt it or something? And who yeah. watches the watch were like, if you don't have anything to add, why are you adapting it? Yeah. So, yeah. Like, work changes with adaptation. Yeah. That in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Look at Good Omens. Yeah, it's a few specific things with the watch that, A, I just don't like some of the stuff. And I've tied that up with my own feelings about some of how I feel it's almost offensive how they've changed yeah. some of the core of it. But, but again, Young, it's like, yeah. and funny now I've calmed down. I'm like, eh, okay. Again, not my, yeah. not my circus. <laughs> Not my circus, not my monkeys, and we will always have the books. We will the, always have the books. But yeah, so I was quite interested in some of the history of celebrity and mm. fame and fandom. There is uh, a book I've only just started reading. Uh, I've mentioned the podcast You're Dead to Me before, a good history podcast hosted yes. by Greg Jenner. He's got a good book called Dead Famous, which is about the history of celebrity. Ooh. Yeah, so I've only started it, but I like uh, he opens with a def- definition celebrity a unique persona made widely known to the public via media coverage and whose life is publicly consumed as dramatic entertainment and whose commercial brand is made profitable for those who exploit their popularity and perhaps also for themselves. Cool. Well, well done. He's defined a very hard thing there. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing. But going back, I mean, so like celebrity has a history that goes back years. Yeah. Uh, right back to, you know, ancient Greece and the way uh, athletes were lauded as heroes. Yeah. Yeah, um, and and uh, thinkers as well, almost, weren't they? Those slightly yes. more niche, yeah. Well, this was uh, what we talked about when we were talking about pyramids and the symposiums and stuff. You know, they'd put on performances where they had conversations to get their thoughts out. Yeah, yeah. And write each other. Yeah, yeah. Like Plato would write about, would write the character of Socrates, and Socrates would come and watch this thing. Like they kind of wrote fan fiction about each We've other. We've got to get around to doing this to each other, like writing our arguments. <laughs> If you don't think that I have all of my arguments <laughs> in my head before I have them. <laughs> yes, which is but then I'm very infuriating and don't always follow your script because you never give I know. it to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought it was interesting when film stuff started, yeah. uh, actors originally weren't credited, like their names weren't on posters okay. or in the credits. Because uh, studios were worried, you know, if their names become big and well-known, they'd be able to push for more money. And that's eventually what happened. Right. And studios had the power to create or not create stars or not by bothering to put their names on posters and above titles. Right. And then what they similar to this book, once they started getting recognition, they realized they could push for it. Yeah. Okay. But so much of a star's image was controlled by the studio. This is uh, the Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar. Like it's, it's a Coen Brothers movie and it's a comedy, but it does look at this uh, studio life in the sort of golden age of Hollywood and how they manipulated people and their public image, public image and public persona, you know, down to this is who you can be publicly dating. Okay. Uh, and th- that's still kind of a thing yeah, in celebrity I was now. To think. I'm not sure was... if it's like all the stories I've heard about that are apocryphal or whether I'm getting them off TV shows I've watched that are fictional. Um, but <laughs> there but is like, definitely I'm sure that happens, some... right? Yeah. Well, I mean, look at Marilyn Monroe. You know, yeah. she was a girl called Norma Jean yeah. who was creating this image and reportedly hated it. You know, she cried at the script to some like it hot because her character was so stupid. Yeah, she was by all accounts really smart, wasn't she? Yeah, uh, but that's she's remembered as the sort of fluffy blonde. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 
uh, there's this lovely photo of her not long before she died and she's 27 just of her mm. on the beach and in our aesthetic which is oversized jumper over her hands yeah and I love and I love that photo so much because she's yeah she's smiling. smiling and she's laughing yeah. and she's not posing yeah she's smiling with like her face is wrinkling in the places you wrinkle and you smile not when you're smiling for a camera kind of thing yeah yeah like that Joe. that's really natural <laughs> this is perfect content for the podcast it's fine i'll gif you uh but there's a good um thought process of a scenario on this oh yeah uh this is page 279 it was fascinating you could become famous just for well fa- being famous it occurred to him that this was an extremely dangerous thing and he might, might probably have to have someone killed one day. <laughs> It'd be with reluctance. Hmm, might have to have somebody killed over this <laughs> mental note. And that, if you look at what Veterinari ends up doing with the city, and I don't want to spoil anything major, but how he allows people to create public personas that work for the best of the city. Mm. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of the book Going Postal. Yes. He obviously keeps this in mind and eventually turns it to his advantage. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that's a politician doing it. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be some examples of various uh, overbearing, totalitarian, that's what I mean, not overbearing, governments doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's change all of the proper political language into parenting technique. Uh (laughs) But this kind of goes into my other big thing to talk about uh-huh. from the section in the book which is the idea of parasocial relationships yes. which is the time you taught me yeah well it's a term I only learned the other month time this year <laughs> is so difficult um after basically one of my favorite things in the world imploded after the host of um one of the hosts of got kind of outed in a as a twat. being a horrific person yeah, yeah. um and it kind of made me, yeah, have a long, hard look at myself about how emotionally invested I was in that group of people chatting and how I'd kind of, especially during lockdown, started looking forward to it like I'd look forward to seeing my friends each week. Yeah, so this is the idea of a parasocial relationship is you somewhat create a relationship in your head with someone who does not know you. Yeah. Because, and podcasts are a particularly good example of it mm. because of the nature of them. Yeah. They're all casual and it does. It feels like you're listening to your mates chat, especially because you listen Mm. to hundreds of hours of them sometimes. Yeah. And you feel like you know them and obviously you don't and certainly they don't know you. But yeah. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily a sad thing. And I'm not saying that our listeners can't think of us as dear friends because we do care about all of you dearly. Yeah. But But we don't know you personally. Well, actually, yeah. some of you we do. Well, that's it. It's, it's not that it's an inherently terrible thing. As I've said, as I said, like at the beginning of lockdown, like I gave out a list of ones you can kind of do that with on purpose. It's just, I think, important to bear in mind. Yes. Especially when you realise like you've had an actual real life reaction to something that's happened in this very one sided part of your life. Yeah. Like I had a similar experience, not the same, but uh, there was a podcast I listened to with the two co-hosts were married and uh, about halfway through making that podcast, they, they separated. Oh, they continued sad. making the po- Yeah. They continued making the podcast together and stayed very good friends, mm. but it was a very sad thing. And obviously, you know, there's quite a big fan group around this podcast. So everyone sort of had this shared, yeah. Oh, we feel bad for them together. 
but it was a very weird thing to feel so much sympathy for people or empathy or whatever for people who don't know me and to sort of worry about them and hope that they're okay. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it gets, it overlaps with the entitled fandom thing quite a lot sometimes, especially when there's a lot of people talking, like um, with the with the podcast I was on about, there's a Discord group mm. and a lot of people in there were like, talking about it and I was talking about it as well it was kind of like a shared oh this is really sad and weird thing and then Mm. I kind of gradually became aware that the talking was very entitled and oh the remaining host should do this and should do that and I was like you know what no they're actually dealing with one of their real life friends being out like realizing he's like this and it's absolutely none of our business how they react to this yeah like (laughs) Entitlement in fandom is such a weird thing you see often. Yeah. And it it makes me cringe now. Um, yeah. But I've seen it, yeah, in so many different spaces. Yeah, it's, um, you'd be tempted to say like, oh, it's a teenage thing, but it's absolutely not. Some of the worst people I've seen do it have been, you know, 25 no, and above, for sure. It is absolutely possible for adults to do it. But this relates to particularly this part of the book. Uh-huh. Um, and this is when they're trying to figure out what to do about the giant uh, ginger climbing the what's it, uh, which I forgot to the mention. The giant ginger we talking, climbing the what's it, good. <laughs> I, forgot to, I forgot to mention some of my favourite movie references. Oh yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'll do those quickly. Well, first of all, you've got Ginger describing her j- dream to Victor. Uh, if I can find the, sorry, um, page two two three. Yeah which is a reference to all of the different like movie studios opening credits things. Yes, yeah, it's the, the is it Par- Paramount, the one with the yeah. lamp? Yeah, she, she starts with the mountain, stars around it, yeah. and then one of them comes down, it's not a star, it's a woman holding a torch over her head, then there's lots of lights, and then there's a roar like a lion. Yeah. So it's Paramount is the mountain, uh, Columbia is the woman holding a torch over her head, I think. And then the lights are 20th Century Fox and the flashing lights. Oh, so it was all lion. mixed up, was it? Okay, right, right. Yeah, and then the, li- <laughs> the lion is MGM. Uh, but the thing I was referring to is, obviously, the giant ginger. Yeah. Uh, you've got, first of all, the librarian Tarzan swinging yeah. towards her <laughs> and doing the, ah, 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 ah. Yeah. <laughs> Very George then, of, of the course, Jungle. Before yes. everything. <laughs> You've also got, I mean, the the giant woman is kind of attack of the fifty foot woman, but then yeah. you have this iconic idea of the giant woman hold, carry, climbing the tower, holding the tiny ape, yes. which is King Kong backwards, <laughs> backwards King Kong, and I just love the image. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but the actual um, bit I was talking about with Victor and this idea of kind of the fans not quite getting the difference between reality and fiction. Sure. Um, they expect him to go and save the day because they've seen it in the pictures. Yeah. And because moving pictures is so new to Ankh Morpork, there is this kind of blur between reality and fiction. So as far as they know, he is this kind of marvellous hero. They think they're real and they're not going to do anything because they think he is a hero and he can go and do it. Yeah, I like the the authoritative 
pipe smoking guy going clear clear the way for the lad let him uh, let him get on with yes. his things <laughs> and then go sort on, of the mother on, Jeff. you can you can uh, sort that out now i've got them out of the way for you <laughs> yeah and there's the mother with the child and the child's going well where's his sword she said well i'm sure he's off to fetch it directly yeah. and gives him an encouraging says, go on go on dear it's fine we know it's just you can Don't imagine all these people so well and i'm not entirely sure where from but i know i know that entire scene from yep. real life somewhere. I love it yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's beautiful it's it's sort of the uh when you've bullshitted your way into a position and then you actually have to do something with people watching yeah. it's like oh Ooh. oh hang on <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely <sighs> so I enjoyed I enjoyed that I enjoyed thinking about that and uh the idea of how the fame and fandom affects especially when the technology that has brought this fame and fandom is so new because it was like a thing uh, when early movies existed people panicked and scrambled and got out of their seats in a film scene that had a train coming towards the screen wow yeah because it seemed so real and yeah they sort of forget that that screen is there yeah i mean that's just instinctual isn't it ha huh, yeah that's weird and cool yeah so it's almost something people haven't have had a learn to relationship have a relationship with yet so they've developed an unhealthy one yeah yeah and i mean maybe that's the case with like podcasts and that now we're seeing a yeah and and with authors becoming more available on the internet and yeah i think internet ties in so much it ties into it so much because you can have this direct line of communication now yeah if you read through as i often do terry pratchett's old posts on the um alt.fandom.net thing um he is pretty much always grumpy yeah you can tell because like everyone talks in such a even then in the 90s and early 2000s it's just people talking about him in such a rude entitled way and he's coming in like (laughs) you mind (laughs) yeah always grumpy is a bit mean but like quite often curt i would say and rightfully so not like overreacting um (laughs) There's a couple of uh, things sort of from the Discworld history that this comes up with. Uh, one of them being the fact that he wrote sorcery because there was so much pressure yeah. to bring back Rincewind. Yeah. And uh, you could tell he didn't want to when he did interviews around the book. He was more excited to talk about the next books he was writing. Like yeah. that was a book written out of a sense of obligation. And then when he was ready uh, to bring Rincewind back, the next one he's in is much, much better. Yeah, because it worked and because he had a story that worked for Rincewind. There's also the uh, quote from last week's episode where he was, you know, saying, yes, this studio is meant to be this one. The studio is meant, and I've gone horse on the internet explaining that I just made up floating bladder (laughs) because it was funny. So we obviously got asked this stuff a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which like the silly references and that fine. Yeah. Because why not? But I, I, there must be a, an odd mix of happiness that people care and frustration that people aren't just letting you do your thing. Yeah. Like you, you definitely feel it from, as you be. said, like Patrick Rothfuss, like I feel like his fandom has almost squashed the urge for him to finish that book now. Yeah. Because he can't put anything on the internet with people just commenting underneath book three. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one might say, stop posting on the internet then. I was like, well, no, we shouldn't have to. And he does a lot of good. Yeah. 
like he does a lot of raising money yeah. for charity and <laughs> he does a lot of good and he does a lot of artistic things that aren't this particular book and yeah yeah just let people exist guys on the other hand I then kind of see it from the other side in that when someone starts a trilogy ends the second book with a cliffhanger and then kind of refuses to talk about when he might release the next one that is frustrating oh yeah, yeah. absolutely but, like really that frustration like it's kind of my problem and it's that yeah. it sucks and it kind of feels like a like a very informal contract that was never fulfilled but at the end of the day like he's a real person yeah <laughs> he's a real person there are lots of books like he's there doing so all kinds books. of stuff that's important and interesting like if you need to see stuff by him there's stuff like <laughs> i think this is the whole thing the fan of fandom comes down to is just remember that other human beings are other human beings yeah yeah and it is kind of easy to forget yeah but a fun trick is just to imagine them brushing their teeth it's like ah yes that is a human being (laughs) i heard that somewhere uh, about like if someone's if you're too starstruck to talk to someone the trick is to it's less creepy than say imagine everyone in their underwear so imagine people brushing their teeth yeah (laughs) I'll remember that if I ever get to meet Neil Gaiman again because last time I could not form a sentence. No, me neither. But never mind. We did, we did have a nice evening. <laughs> in our defence, there were quite a few thousand people queuing behind yeah. us. Well, that's not really in our defence because we had quite a long time to think about a sentence while we were queuing. Yes, but I'm not sure how much of it was starstruck and how much of it was British awkwardness that I didn't <laughs> want to take too long because there was a large queue behind me. Yeah. All right. So... Have you got an obscure reference, Finial? Yeah, kind of. Uh, I've got back to the Yetis briefly. Ah, Before they get trampled by 1,000 elephants-ish, they were saying, oh, what do you get if you cross a mountain with an elephant? Ah. Which, like, in the context is, like, talking about he's crossing the mountains with elephants because he's going across them, you know. Um, But it's just kind of a almost callback, although probably just a reference at the time to when there were just loads of jokes about what do you get when you cross an elephant with an X. Um, mm. And so I just picked out a couple of good ones I could find. Um, Excellent. What do you get if you cross an elephant with a fish? I don't know. Swimming trunks. <laughs> what do you get if you cross an elephant with a rhinoceros? I don't know. Elephino. <laughs> and finally... What do you get when you cross an elephant with a kangaroo? I don't know. Bloody great holes all over Australia. (laughs) Marvellous. Which seemed quite a pratchett one to finish on. (laughs) I don't think we could end this episode in a better place. So play play us out, Sam, to properly mangle the quote. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's definitely not the quote. Thank you for listening to the True Show Make You Fret. We are going to take a little break now. We'll be back at the beginning of November to begin our talk about Reaper Man. Yes, yes. Definitely in my top three. I am I am really looking forward to this. I'm excited. Oh, I love it so much. Uh, yes, we'll be back in November to talk about Reaper Man. There's no bonus episode coming next week because you've had two this month already, you greedy bastards. <laughs> we mean that in a loving way. Yeah. Also, it's not so, like they asked for it. That was just us putting more work yeah, on our own plates yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry we keep giving you content in the meantime 
You can follow us on Instagram at the Tree Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Bod, on Facebook at the Tree Shall Make You Fret. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, snacks, and albatrosses at the Tree Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. You can follow our subreddit, r slash TTSMYF. It's the initials. I'll get the hang of that. Please send us some agony aunt letters. It'll be great fun. Or just any kind of feedback, questions, things that we got wrong, as long as you say it nicely. <laughs> yes, please correct us gently. As always, do not ever contact me to explain the rules of time travel or cricket. Very, very important. And until next time, dear listener, Hollywood dreams. Dreams.